Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 15. We're continuing our study through this gospel, Matthew chapter 15, and in this passage we find a topic that is right at the heart and the center of the Bible, the topic of worship. In another passage, one that Richard read to us earlier, John chapter 4, we're told by Jesus that God is on the lookout for true worshipers. God is seeking true worshipers. Not worship, mind you. God has plenty of worship. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. So the sun, the moon, the stars above, they all worship God. Other psalms tell us that the trees of the forest sing for joy. The rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy together. The meadow and the valleys shout and sing together for joy. So... The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. And for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, it really is, isn't it? Even the thunderstorms coming through this last week, you know, declaring the glory of God. The whole earth is filled with His glory, and so also is the whole host of heaven. All of God's mighty angels, dressed in festal gathering, dressed for a party, are always and forever praising God as well. So, God has plenty of worship. Jesus says that He is looking for true worshipers. You want to know what God is doing right now? He is looking for true worshipers. So, where do you think He's going to look? Where do you think He's going to look? I'm going to wager... One place he'll look is right here. We've gathered for worship today, and God's been checking us out. God's been examining our worship. He's looking for true worshipers. And this is why our passage today is so helpful, because in it, Jesus gives us a warning about worship. This is what we're going to see today. I'll I'll go ahead and give it to you up front. We're going to learn from Jesus that acts of worship can be empty of worship. Acts of worship can be empty of worship. Knowing that God is searching for true worshipers, Jesus warns us here to evaluate our worship because acts of worship can be empty of worship. You can sing good songs in vain. You can listen to solid preaching in vain. You can lift holy hands. You can give away your money. But it can all be in vain. These are acts of worship, but they can be done empty of worship. Jesus calls it here vain worship, empty worship. And so I've entitled this message this morning, Are We Truly Worshiping? Are We Truly Worshiping? So, Let's take our copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, feel free to use the one provided for you in the pew there. We're looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. I invite you to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative Word to us. 
Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching his doctrine. The commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? When they heard this saying, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False witness, slander, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Well, this is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, this passage is really an important one in Matthew's gospel. Now, in it, our Lord is questioned by a group of men. And I want you to notice in verse 1, it notes that they are from Jerusalem. They are from Jerusalem. Jesus is in this remote part of Galilee, and we're told that he's met by a group of men who have come all the way up from Jerusalem, and that's about a 60-mile trek. So this is no small journey that they have made. And what we're meant to understand by this is this is a group that represents authority. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the seat of the temple. It was the place of the schools of Judaism. It was the place of the most religiously minded. And what Jesus taught was diametrically opposed to what they taught. 
It was exactly opposite. They taught that worship was an external matter. Whereas Jesus taught, worship is an internal matter. They taught that it was about being religious and having a cleansed life. Jesus taught that it was about being in relationship and having a cleansed heart. So the two were diametrically opposed. This is going to be a head-on collision. And the clash that starts here in chapter 15 is really going to culminate... 12 chapters later, when these same men conspired to crucify Jesus on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. So this is actually a very significant moment in Matthew's gospel. What happens here really sets the course for what's coming. But what's even more significant than that is what Jesus teaches us here about worship. Confronted with these men and their, their false worship, Jesus has some very important lessons to teach us about true worship. So we're going to look at three of them this morning. Uh, three marks or three characteristics of true worship. And the first is, true worship exalts Holy Scripture. True worship exalts Holy Scripture. The first blow in this this confrontation between Jesus and these men is thrown in verse 2 by the scribes and the Pharisees. They come and they ask Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, this is kind of a technical thing. You're going to have to bear with me here. I need to explain this to you. They talk about this tradition of the elders. What is this tradition of the elders? Well, they're referring to a body of teachings and really a very detailed list of regulations that eventually were written down into something that's called the Mishnah. But at this point in history, uh, when this confrontation was happening, these were just, these were just a, a set of oral traditions that were handed down. And the idea behind them, the original idea behind them, was to construct a fence, to build a fence around the law. To protect God's law. So take for instance this issue of hand washings that they bring up. What the law taught, the only law in the Bible about hand washing was that the priests had to wash their hands before they served at the temple. That's the only law on hand washing in scripture. But in their desire to meticulously avoid any possibility of becoming unclean, the tradition of the elders had broadened its application, not just to the priest serving at the temple, but to all Israel. Let's just play it safe. Everybody cleans their hands all the time, and that will help kind of eradicate, you know, moral germs, so to speak. We'll all be clean, and then we'll have less of a chance of being uncleaned. So there was something good in that. They wanted to protect something there. But their tradition went even further than that. It, it came to include detailed rules about how high up on your hands you had to wash and, and how much water was necessary for washing and where could you source the water and how could you store the water. And on and on it went until eventually, when it was all written down, there were 4,000 words worth of rules and regulations on hand washing. So that's, that's about the equivalent of, of the book of Second Corinthians. If you want to go and look at that later today. Uh, about the equivalent of the book of 2 Corinthians. And incidentally, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he, when he said, when he taught, my yoke is easy and light in comparison to the, the Pharisees and the traditions. Remember that in Matthew 11? He said, come to me, all who labor and on heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Jesus is saying, listen, my yoke is easy and light. It's a relational yoke. It's not a regulative yoke. It's not a religious yoke like the Pharisees and the scribes teach you. They have 4,000 words worth of rules just on hand washing. And I'm going to teach you hand washing doesn't really matter. Spurgeon, commenting on this, says, Washing of the hands is a thing proper enough. One could wish it were oftener practiced. It's the parents here today. One could wish it were oftener practiced. But to exalt it into a religious rite is a folly and a sin. All this is why when these religious leaders question Jesus about keeping their traditions, he, he punches back, asking them, verse 3, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Just turns it on the head. And for example, Jesus gives them in verses 4 through 6 this practice they had of pledging their money to the temple, a kind of religious vow they would make to God that they used as a loophole for getting out of of having to, to care for their aged parents. He's saying, your tradition breaks the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father. So their traditions went beyond God's law and even caused people to sometimes break God's law. And yet these Pharisees and scribes taught that one's worship was measured by their faithfulness to these traditions. That's what's going down in these first six verses. And the takeaway for us, the way we we can think about how to apply this is, beware the traditions of man. Beware the traditions of man that are elevated alongside or even exalted above the commandments of God and are made the measure of true worship. Beware the traditions of man. What traditions of man? Well, I'll give you three examples. Uh, The first is, beware the traditions of man in cults like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They have three other books of teachings that they hold to be authoritative alongside the Bible. The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, went so far as to declare the Book of Mormon to be, quote, the most correct of any book on earth, the keystone of our religion, and that a man would do or would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. So beware of cults like Mormonism that exalt their traditions and their teachings, the traditions and teachings of men, alongside and even above Holy Scripture. They do not promote true worship. Second example. Not only beware of cults, but beware the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, this one may get a little closer to home. Some of you have Roman Catholic friends and Roman Catholic family members. I know some of the kids in our church go to a co-op where there are a number of Roman Catholic families that you are friends with, and that's good. We should be friends with them. But Well, let me ask you this, pop quiz. What doctrine is at the heart of our difference between the Roman Catholic Church and us? What's the doctrine at the heart of it? They... 
Justification by faith alone, says Jacob, who will be teaching a class on church history coming up for the discipleship classes, and so this will be very good for you to go through. Um, listen, uh, an aside, the gospel is essentially got two sides to it. It's got an objective side and a, and a subjective side. The objective side is who Jesus is and what he has done. The objective side is who Jesus is and what he has done. On this, Roman Catholics and Protestants largely agree. That is not what the Reformation is over. We all agree that he was divine, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he um, died a, a substitutionary atoning death, that he rose again bodily from the grave. We agree with the Roman Catholics on this. If you ask a Roman Catholic, yeah, are we justified by Jesus and his death, they are going to say yes. But there is, a, there is a second side to the gospel, a subjective side of the gospel. It's how that justification is received. It's justification by faith alone. This is the agree, or disagreement. Uh, we believe, because Scripture teaches, that we are justified by faith alone. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the teachings of Scripture. We are justified by faith alone. But Rome believes that while faith is necessary for justification, it is actually accomplished through the sacraments. And in fact, the Council of Trent, which was Rome's response to the Reformation, actually declared justification by faith alone to be anathema. It's a damned teaching, they say, and that is still the official position of Rome today. You can look it up, Canons Concerning Justification, that's canon number 9. They believe in a false gospel, and that's the real heart of our difference between Roman Catholic Church and ourselves. All that's just an aside because some of you are in a co-op with Roman Catholics and I want you to understand that we have a very different gospel. But we have a different disagreement with, with Roman Catholics. We have another one. Roman Catholics acknowledge three sources of authority. The Bible, but theirs includes the Apocrypha. The sacred tradition or they sometimes just call it the tradition, with a capital T, and the magisterium, which is the, the teaching ministry of the Roman Catholic Church. All three of these sources are equally authoritative. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church says that they are, quote, so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. And so some examples of beliefs and practices that come from sacred tradition in the magisterium include Mary's being born without original sin, her perpetual virginity and bodily assumption into heaven, the authority of the Pope and his infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra, and their understanding of the sacraments and their place in the Catholic life. So the Catholic Roman Catholic Church does not promote a true gospel, the true gospel, and neither does it promote true worship. It elevates the tradition of man above and over the word of God. All right, third example and closest to home. Wherever there is a high view of God and his word, just like there is in this church, there is this tendency and temptation, listen, to build a fence around the word of God to make sure we're not violating it. So that the measure of faithfulness, the measure of worship, isn't if somebody is obeying a verse, but if they're obeying our take on that 
verse. This happens in every church and denomination. This happens right here in our church. Investing human understanding, human precepts with the authority of divine revelation so that we judge others, not by God's word, but by our take and our application of God's word. So let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. One, one in this church that we have seen is how we ed- educate our kids. Homeschool, private school, public school. The command of God is to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. That's the word of God, but how we do that, how we apply that, can and will vary. Now listen, I'll, I'll be very frank with you. I believe most public schools have become places of immoral indoctrination. I think love compels me to say that. I do believe that. That's why I don't have my kids in public school. And I may warn you against putting your kids in public school if you can at all help it. But here's the deal. I'm not, and I can't, and I won't judge you for it. Education is a family's individual choice. So when you begin to judge others, when you begin to feel something in your heart against them based on that issue, you have to make the distinction between your application of God's word and the actual word of God. Because situations vary. Families vary. In this situation, school systems vary. We have to make the distinction between the actual Word of God and the application of the Word of God. This is so important. Listen, this, friends, this is how Christians walk in unity together. They make the distinction between one's application of God's Word and the actual Word. I'll give you another example. Uh, we have people here who are very passionate about uh, you know, health, well-being, the nourishment of this family, their family. This is what we do and this is what we don't do. The point is, uh, are you making the distinction between what you personally believe, what you personally are committed to, and what the Bible says? So asking you, where are you tempted to promote your application of God's word rather than his actual word? Where are you tempted to promote your practice of God's Word rather than the principle that God's Word actually teaches? Other examples might include your political convictions, your views on alcohol consumption, what movies your family will or won't watch, if someone should shop at Target or not. Friends, beware of the temptation to divide the church up into those who are wise and foolish, obedient and disobedient over issues that you do not have a verse for. That is legalism, dear brothers and sisters. It's exalting our take, our thoughts on God's Word to the level of God's Word. And as long as the thoughts of man are central in the church, the worship of man will be central in the church. As long as the thoughts of man are central in the church, the worship of man will be central in the church. But when the truth of God is central in the church, the worship of God will be central in the church by his varied members of his body. So it is a word-exalting church that leads to God-glorifying worship. 
That's point number one. Point number two, mark number two, is true worship promotes authentic affection. True worship promotes authentic affection. Jesus landed his first punch in verses 3 through 6, and then in verses 7 through 9, he lands another. So our Lord gives him a kind of left and a right. He knocks him out with both. So look again with me at verses 7 through 9. And this is really just stinging what Jesus says here. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. A hypocrite is a phony person. It's a play actor. It's someone who wears a mask, is literally what the word means. So these scribes and these Pharisees, they, they appeared to care about God's word. It looked as if they cared a great deal about God's word, but in reality, they were only honoring God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. And in this, we are warned against worshiping God with physical actions, but not spiritual affection. Let's be on guard against worshiping God with physical actions, void of spiritual affections. Because that's not true worship. There's a tendency and temptation in our church and in our lives we have to guard against to worship God with physical actions like going to church, singing psalms, praying, listening to preaching, taking the Lord's Supper, doing all that, but without spiritual affection. Your heart's not really engaged. Your heart is actually far from God. I hope you kids and teenagers are really listening to this because this is like the lesson for you to learn in the Christian walk right now. Honoring God with your lips while your heart is far from God. That You're not being authentic. You're not being real. You do things to worship God, but, but you're wearing a mask. You're pretending. Your heart's not really in it. Maybe you're here today, but you would have preferred to stay home. If that's you, you can be real with God about that. Like, a little secret, he already knows. You can be real with God with that. Perhaps you sang along with us today, but it was only music to you. Your heart wasn't in it. You prayed along with us, but your prayers didn't go above the ceiling. They're just words. Honoring God with your lips, but not with your heart. Maybe you're in a season where you're crying out for God to help you. You're crying out for God to grow you. You're crying out for God to change something. But the problem is, is you don't actually want to change in your heart. You say the words, you pray because you're supposed to, you think these thoughts, but in your heart, you don't really want to change. Your hope, your love, your joy, it's not fixed on God. It's fixed on people or it's fixed on objects. Maybe you honor God with your lips. You live far more conservatively than that neighbor next door or that coworker over there. But you're still living far from God in your heart. Earlier we sang in our service, You deserve the greater glory. 
Overcome I lift my voice to the king in need of nothing. Empty-handed I rejoice. Friends, you sang those words with your lips today. But maybe you sang through the whole song and you didn't even think about it. Your heart was far from God. You were honoring God with your lips, but not your heart. Friends, the word of Christ to us today is, true religion is a relationship with God. Through His Son. It's not just enjoying some of the things He gives us. It's loving Him for who He is. John Piper says the gospel is not a way to get to heaven. It's a way to get to God. 1 Peter 3.18 teaches, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The best and final gift of the gospel is that we get God. Psalm 27.4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Friends, the best and final gift of God's love in Christ is being brought into God's presence to dwell with Him, to behold His beauty, to see and enjoy the harmony of all His attributes, to hear His perfect will. This is what we inquire of. J.C. Ryle once preached a sermon called Christ is All, and in it he said, Alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. You You give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with Him here. You do not love Him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden to your heart. Oh, repent and change before it's too late. Friends, this is a good word for many of us here today. We need to repent and change. True worship is about our hearts being lifted high to God. Authentic affections, loving Him more and more, so that with increasing intensity we say, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. As a deer pants for living, flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, O God, O living God. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. True worship has an authentic heart, an authentic relation with God, authentic affections. Which leads us neatly into the third point today and may be needed for you to have those authentic affections. Third point is true worship necessitates heart cleansing. Heart cleansing. Verse 11, Jesus summons the crowds to himself and teaches them, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, Jesus is talking about food and drink here. He's, of course, not saying that you can look at whatever you want, like pornography, and it won't defile you. Jesus is saying that 
things that you take into your body, like food and drink, are all clean. They're all fine in the New Covenant era. And Mark's Gospel, he adds this clarifying comment. Thus Jesus declared all food clean. Now, if you read passages like Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, uh, you're going to see lots of rules about what you should and should not eat, or you'll be unclean. So, a question is, is why would God give these kinds of laws under the Old Covenant? Why did He mark some foods as clean and unclean, but then under the, the New Covenant declare all foods clean? What's God doing with that? Well, there's a lot God's doing with that, and... I had a lot more in my sermon about that, but I had to cut it all out. So you can talk to me more about some of it later if you're really interested in it. But Paul explains something of the principle to us in Galatians 4. He teaches that Old Covenant believers, Old Covenant believers were children. I mean, spiritually. They were children, and therefore they were taught as children. Galatians 4.2, he says, Israel was under tutors and governors until the day set forth by their father. So what this means is that under the Old Covenant, God taught Israel like a child. Even using external realities to teach about internal realities. That's what the food laws were. They were like object lessons. They taught Israel about moral defilement. That's the problem with the world. It's not just broken. It's not just broken. The real problem is in the world is moral defilement. And the dietary laws even pointed to the fact that true defilement is inside us. That's why they couldn't consume them. That's why they couldn't eat them. These laws used to, or were used to take something external and to teach something internal about them. But Israel got so focused on the externals, the clean foods and the clean hands and the clean living, that they completely missed, they completely bypassed the lesson about it being an internal problem. The Pharisees and the scribes believed true worship came from a cleaned up life, a clean life, but Jesus wants us to understand that true worship comes from a clean heart. So look again with me at verses 17 through 20. Jesus explains to his disciples, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Uh, Literally, Jesus says it is expelled into the latrine or into the sewer. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is saying here that the food laws and the ceremonial laws, they all pointed to this inner reality of the defilement of the heart and that that's the real problem. Our greatest need isn't clean hands. It's not a religiously clean life. It's not about doing the right things to make us right with God. Our greatest need is a clean heart. We need a pure heart. In his commentary on this passage, J.C. Ryle writes, The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. And that's the problem. 
We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. The seeds of all mischief and wickedness are in our hearts. Uh, Luther once likened uh, original sin to his beard. Feels like a, a Luther kind of Martin Luther kind of thing to, to, to do. He likened original sin to his beard, which he said, I shave off in the morning to look better before other people, but by the next day it has come back. Which is not true for me, so I could not use that illustration, but Luther can and some of you guys can. Original sin is like my beard, which I shave off in the morning to look better for people, but then by the next day it's back, he said, because the roots are within me. Our problem is within the unwashed heart is what defiles us. Listen, if we want to avoid the pollution and defilement that God is so against, what we need is a pure heart. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? See God! Isn't that worship? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see Him. This is where worship comes from. If you want to see God, if you want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple, you need to pray, Lord, purify my heart. Lord, purify my heart. There is only one way our hearts can be cleansed, and it is through confession of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is the great need we have. The blood of Jesus cleanses us of all our sin. Faith in Him purifies our heart. And if you want a cleansed heart... You can do this just between you and God right now. It is a divine transaction. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him as your Savior. If you want to live for God, if you want to see God, if you want to enjoy spiritual worship, then you don't need to clean up your life. You just need to get a clean heart. And you can do that praying to Jesus right now. In fact, I'm going to lead you to do that in just a second if you want to join with me. But Christian, the same goes for you. We never get past the gospel. It's just the same thing every day over and over again. You've been given a clean heart, but sin dirties it up again. Sin defiles it. Sin deceives us from seeing God. And yet God's promise to you is, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you and Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So brothers and sisters, confess your sin and pray, Lord, purify my heart. And He will. Will you pray with me right now? Father, I pray that no one will leave this place with an unwashed heart. Counting maybe on being a better person or living a religious life, but that they would leave here counting only on their heart being cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. With David, we can all pray, no matter where we are, 
saved or unsaved, yet saved, we can pray with David this prayer. Create in us a clean heart and renew within us a right spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.